You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Thank you guys for coming out to have a conversation with us today. By way of introduction, um, my name is Jonathan Welch. I'm on staff as one of the pastors at the Summit Church, which is a multi-site church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. We have nine sites all across the city. And so with each one of those sites, we have an opportunity to, to try to contextualize for a different kind of community. So there's a lot of things from our context I'll be bringing to this conversation today. Um, but even, even as a snapshot of that, our church is a historically white church. We were planted in the early 1960s. But around the early 2000s, like maybe 2002, we actually kind of relaunched with a new, a new name, a new vision, about 300 people at the time. Um, and in the past three to five years, God's really answered a lot of prayers and we've started to look a lot more like our community. I would say now we're about at that kind of tipping point of 80-20. A lot of the multicultural people say that you're not really multicultural until you're 80% majority, 20% minority. And so I think we're right around that kind of tipping point now in terms of just like the demographics of our church. Isaac, can I introduce yourself? Yes, we will shout for the back. There we go. Brother, can you hear me? Yeah. All right. My name's Isaac Adams. I've been hanging out with y'all uh, doing the MC stuff throughout the week. Um, and hopefully I'll be a lot more serious here. Um, I'm a pastor up at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., uh, where Mark Devers is the pastor, senior pastor there. Uh, we're a single site location. Uh, we were the first church planted. DC is divided into four corridors, northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest. We were the first uh, Baptist church in the northeast corridor. Uh, we started with a woman who wanted to start a prayer meeting. Uh, so sisters, thank you for your faithful work. Uh, you can start churches after all. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Um, we're in a, because DC was, I think, quote unquote, chocolate city, but the city's rapidly changing like many places. Uh, we're in a predominantly black neighborhood, I would say, but Capitol Hill is an interesting slice of the city because uh, it used to be in the 80s, you would never go down there. So my mom, we, I grew up in D.C., my mom, when she comes to my house, she laughs because she was like, no one would ever hang out here uh, 20 years ago uh, because it was just drug infested, crime infested. Uh, but now Capitol Hill is ridiculously expensive. Uh, it's a very, very wealthy area. So though uh, two miles down the road, there's all black community. Uh, Capitol Hill itself is this weird kind of gentrified area uh, that is predominantly white. So our church is predominantly white. Uh, we sing with old hymns um, and other things that we'll talk about. But that's just a bit about my context. I've been there for about four years. I grew up in a white PCA church uh, that's about lily white. I mean, we were one of two families uh, that were non-white there. So, And another piece of the context is Isaac and I are not just two people that are tag teaming this talk at the conference, but we actually have known each other for a long time now. Isaac and I were part of the same church when he was in Raleigh-Durham, and so we've you know, maintained our friendship over the years, and so everything you're getting today is, is just an overflow of the conversation of our friendship. Um, which, I think, which I think is a helpful thing just to say, it's not like we talk about this once and we're like, oh, we, fig- we figured that out. Let's, let's move on to more talk. We've literally just been talking about this for years. For years. And I don't think we're maybe even that much closer to figuring it all out than we were when we first started. But if you think that this is going to be the one kind of magic bullet of like, I'm going to resolve this issue now in my church and life, 
I just want to kind of pop that bubble at the at the beginning and just say, here is an invitation to start this conversation or continue this conversation in your own life and ministry. Yes, and I think I think also to even kind of add on to that, I think just because we're inviting inviting all of you guys into what's really more like a testimony than a master class, um, it's gonna it's gonna f- feel a certain way. Like a lot of the stuff we talk about today might imply that this whole conversation is more black and white when it's much broader than that in terms of what's going on in all of our communities. And so there's not, not everything we talk about today is going to speak to everything going on in your community. Even, I mean, even in terms of ethnicity, or maybe it's a generational diversity, or maybe it's, you know, even other kind of demographic or um, economic diversity in your community. All of those things could be applications from the talk that we have today. And a final disclaimer I wanted to give you guys. I don't want you to feel like you got to scramble and jot down everything. And so I put my email address on the board here, jwelch at summitrdu.com. Feel free to email me, and I will send you my whole transcript. And so I just want you guys to take in everything we're talking about, write down some questions. We'll do some Q&A at the end, um, and it should be a great hour. All right? You guys ready to go? Survey? Yeah. Um... I want to do just a quick survey of the room um, just to see where we are at uh, in our churches and in our context. So how many of you would you say you serve or minister in a church body where you are in the majority culture? So most everyone in this room. Okay. How many of you grew up in a faith in a church where you were in the majority culture? Helpful, helpful. Has anyone here ever been a part of a church where you are a cultural minority? Wonderful. That's, that's very helpful to see. And then just a, 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 last, uh, a last question for the survey. How many of you serve in a community that is more diverse, so ethnically, culturally, economically, uh, than your congregation is itself? I mean, just even that survey is a almost everybody in the room. Yeah, almost everybody in the room. I don't know if you do. You want to hop on the next? Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I mean, just the one thing I want to add, and you touched on this earlier, is uh, diversity really is this diamond. So I think of a lot of the times we think about this conversation in a way that's like diversity is that one issue that's kind of on the front of the college brochure that I have to tiptoe around and make sure I don't mess up. Uh, But diversity is a beautiful gift from God. Uh, because we are all made in the image of God, reflecting God. Not one people or ethnicity or type of person reflects God better than another. Uh, and if we lose and only focus on one aspect of diversity, I think we're missing out on the beauty of our diamond. So if we only focus on ethnicity, uh, even though I think ethnicity is a prominent and obviously prolific area we, that needs to be focused on, uh, but if we only focus on that and we don't care about the single old mom in the room or the, or the young single woman who just got pregnant or whatever it may be, and I'm even talking about like the introverts versus the extroverts, right? I mean, there, there are differences in personality that if we don't see like there's, this diamond is multifaceted, we're going to lose out on a lot of this conversation. So I just want to at least just broaden our definition of diversity a bit so we're not just talking about this one thing, even though we're obviously going to be talking about ethical or uh, ethnic issues from the get-go. So that last thing. So allow me to set the stage for us for just a moment. As church leaders in this room today and listening in the podcast later on, 
especially if you're serving in a city or an urban area, we are dealing with a specific set of opportunities to minister cross-culturally that I would say few, if any, generations have faced before, at least in America. I mean, even our politicians recognize this today, right? So with that, we have an even greater opportunity before us, just as Isaac was saying, to see diverse communities rally together around the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that transcends cultural and ethnic boundary lines solely for the glory of God. But having, having grasped that purpose, still I feel like there's four common assumptions about multicultural ministry that we can make sometimes. And this is all coming from, I think I'm guilty of all four of these at some point in my own life in this. So maybe you or somebody you know might even fit into some of these categories. The first, the first common assumption is it's the right thing to do. And that's, that's almost what Isaac's mentioning with like the college brochure kind of thing. I feel like that so many people are attracted to this topic of diversity because it's kind of cool to be inclusive right now. And if you're not, then there's all kinds of negative things. And so even in the church, we know somewhere in our soul that our Christianity is not just for the people that look like us. A second assumption is that the appearance of diversity is all that matters. But, and now, especially for us that come from some of the, I would say, more reformed churches, what we practically pursue might even look like a multicolored church, ethnically, which is a different conversation than a multicultural church. And those will be some of the distinctions that we get into today. But I think it's really important for us to see that those are two similar but entirely separate conversations to have. A third assumption is that sometimes we often want to look for the quick fix or the quick results. I mean, in an age where we get everything instant, we can listen to songs or watch movies instantly, everything comes to us at lightning fast speed. Of course, we want our solutions to be fast too. And this topic, probably more so than any other, it's slow. It's hard. It takes a long time and a lot of prayer and a lot of work. A fourth assumption, especially at a worship conference, come on, man, just tell us the right music to play to make everybody happy. All of us want that kind of fix, too, and we will get into music. It is a worship conference. But I think it's really important for us to see that, yes, as worship leaders, also as pastors, but even more than that, as Christ followers... This whole conversation is about so much more than just the songs that we sing on Sunday morning. After all, our communities don't need more multi-ethnic or multicultural events. What we need is we need men and women of God living multicultural lives. And that's a little bit of a thesis for our talk today. So don't settle for multicultural events. Live multicultural lives. Loving others is not just a box for us to check and move on. It's a lifestyle to live, y'all. I think that one of my phrases that, you know, that often comes to mind when I think of this, one of my friends likes to say, people are the mission, not the project. And our discipleship as believers, it happens in relationships, not events. Gospel community is the goal. It is the end. A Revelation 5, Ephesians 2, 14, Christ has broken down the dividing wall. 1 Corinthians 9, 22, becoming all things to all people. 
that kind of transformation of each and every one of us as men and women. That's what we need. That's what our cities need. That's what our churches need. So the question is, how do we get there? And that's going to be what we unpack for the remainder of our time together. And the way we're going to move through these things, how we get there, AA. AA is the acronym. Not that kind of AA, because, <laughs> especially because this is a Baptist seminary. <laughs> but especially take, being Baptist. Take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> but especially being Baptist, we've got to alliterate our points, right? Amen. Amen. AA, in terms of this, I mean awareness and action. Awareness and action. And so we're going to move through a series of points, and we're going to talk about a point of awareness and a point of action in seven different areas. And to kind of land the plane before we get into all this stuff, I just want to read from God's Word for us. This is, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. This is a man who said in Philippians 3, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he knew his culture. He knew his ethnic identity. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 9. If you have a Bible, you might want to open that. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. I'm just going to read this paragraph for us today. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Some of you might even want to highlight, I have become. Everything we're talking about today is not something, it's, it's not how we're born. It's something God has to do in us. It's a work that the Holy Spirit has to do in each and every one of us. As we see in Paul's own verb tense there. I have become all things to all men. So how do we become all things to all people? It starts with awareness and action and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say a prayer for us. Holy Spirit of God, we need you to show us how to apply these truths from your word today. God, you're the only one who can do this work to make us more into your image. So God, give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you in the time that we have together today and move each and every one of us in this room to love God, but also to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you for calling us to these things. And thank you for the strength to do Thank you for the strength to do it only in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And to the glory of God the Father, we pray. Amen. Isaac, you want to start us off? Yeah, man. Uh, I just I want I want to rejoice in what the the tense he was talking about and having become because I want to make uh, just one more point and we'll dive in. I think Satan, our enemy, uses shame in this conversation more than any other conversation. That's good. Uh, and I think the temptation is to be like my position in this life on this side of the fallen world is white and guilty. We're black and condemned, and we are not that by God's grace. Romans 8, 1, we are free and justified in Christ. And that is our position. And that's a wonderful thing because we can hear talks like this and hear about Revelation 5 and think, my church isn't that, therefore I've failed. 
And the point of Revelation 5 is that only God will bring that about. Our church, our local churches now are dress rehearsals for that great event. And yet it's Ephesians 3.10 through the local church that God is bringing about his manifest wisdom to bring, to bring glory to himself. So the local church isn't this peripheral thing like, oh, it's not that big of a deal or we just have some set songs that we're just trying to impress people with. But it's what God is working through. It's what we're going to talk about here. So I just I appreciated that note about sanctification being slow and steady, even corporately among our people. Uh, what you also touched on is that this is a discipleship issue. And I think we've really divorced diversity and unity from our discipleship. So as long as we can do evangelism and be personally pious, we're typically happy. And I want to say get diversity back in there and get it in there soon. Um, And Jonathan touched on this. This is just not an event. Reconciliation, John Perkins, a a leader in uh, reconciliation in this conversation, would say reconciliation is a lifestyle, not an event. So let me jump in. Point one on awareness Do you know what's going on in your community? So David Wells says a good pastor uh, or even a good church leader has two things in his hand, a Bible and a newspaper. Do you know what's going on between those two poles in the world? Do you know what's going on in America, in your city? We are in this unprecedented age of diversity. People say by 2043, America will be majority minority, which is this weird kind of uh, oxymoron. But nonetheless, it's to say that because of things like globalization and travel and technology, our country is looking more diverse than it ever has before. And there's also specific challenges facing uh, Caucasians and African-Americans specifically uh, in our churches. And I think there are principles that can be drawn from this for all different types of ethnicities. Uh, But I think it's Uh, completely fair to say that these past years, I think really starting with the Trayvon Martin shooting uh, and going up to Eric Gardner in New York or Walter Scott in South Carolina or or Philando Castile in Minneapolis, um, have brought about just an unprecedented kind of reawakening and reshaking of this conversation. And are you even informed about that conversation? Do you know what's going on? In Reformed churches, we rightly want to put the Bible first uh, and the gospel first and our doctrine first. And that is true and of first importance. Uh, The danger is we can reduce everything uh, to an individual agency around around those topics. And what I mean is that as long as people are individually believing in the gospel, uh then we're happy and content. And I am happy for people to believe in the gospel. God, man, Christ response. The problem is if we divorce our theology from our practice, well, then we get into real trouble on these issues. And a lot of times we've just said, oh, that's outside. That's that's not a gospel issue. Therefore, we're not going to engage. Uh, And ignorance is a clear villain in this conversation that I think people are like, uh, it's not, you can't know everything. It's not that big of a deal. And I want to ask, do you know what's going on? Uh, so the application there, and you might have heard this phrase or seen it on social media, is to stay woke. Okay, what that means is to be, in a sense, awakened to these issues, is to, be, is to know what's going on uh, in your communities, in your cities, in our country at large. Uh, And the problem with something like that, and again, this is where shame sneaks into this conversation, is 
Uh, wokeness or awareness is not some type of Gnosticism. It's not some type of special secret knowledge that only a subset of Christians should have. No, but we want to have this awareness because this is an issue of neighborness. It's an issue of our brothers, and we are commanded to put one another ahead of one another. So in that sense, I want to encourage people to really wake up to the issues. And if you're here doing that, I think you're starting to do that. So let me kick it back to you, yep. and we'll go from there. So another point of awareness here. What's the demographic of your community? Do you know that? Do you know the breakdown of who's in the community around your church? There's a lot of perspectives in this conversation, as we've already said. Um, but I think, I think a way that I would like to kind of give a working thesis for you guys to summarize this is just the conviction that the church should reflect the diversity of the community and declare the diversity of the kingdom. I'll say that again. The church of Jesus Christ should reflect the diversity of the community and declare the diversity of the kingdom. I want to break that down for us. First, in terms of reflecting the diversity of the community, let's just say hypothetically that all of us are in Northern Ireland or someplace like that right now, you know? I actually looked this up, but all the, all the ethnic minorities in Northern Ireland are just 1% of the population. So if we're all at a church plant in Northern Ireland, we might actually choose songs that everybody likes. It's a whole lot easier up there, you know? But I think it's just important for us to realize don't force conversations that might not be applicable to your community in that. And the second part of that phrase, it's so important for us to declare the diversity of the coming kingdom of God. Both of those clauses actually balance each other out in a way that applies to all of us. I mean, even if we are in a fairly homogenous community, there is something to be said about, about all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ dwelling together in unity. I mean, I think, of, I think of passages, especially in the book of Revelation, Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's all of us. Every one of us, and we have an opportunity to declare that in the kind of unity that we have in our churches. So, even just speaking personally for a minute, um, my awareness went to another level a couple of years ago when I, when I looked at the demographics of Durham County, which is where most of our campuses are of our church. Durham County in the 2010 census is 40% white, 40% black, 15% Hispanic, and 5% Asian American. And so that puts a whole new picture, even, even on my own prayer life, for my church and for our city in that. And so I think, I think the action step here for us is intentionality. Create ministries that reach into your community. Don't expect necessarily all the cultures of your city to conform to the majority culture that's at work already in your church. Find that balance of knowing where your community is and be intentional to pray that God would change your church. And then also put some action steps in place. 
to speak to those that aren't like your majority culture? I think you, you can hear create ministries, and if you're like me, you're like, what, what does that mean? And I think to give a testimony of what your church has done, uh, they've gone and started Bible studies and started doing training and kind of mentorships in low-income schools in the neighborhoods. And you've seen an influx from those communities because people are saying, why are you over here doing this? Now, I'm not saying that's what your church needs to do specifically, but that's, I think, a practical example of that. Uh, that's wonderful. And let's say you don't want, you can't, for whatever reason, get to the school. Uh, another ministry, and here's, a, here's kind of a step of awareness, okay, for point three, is a question, who do you hang out with? So if you just wrote down 10 of your closest friends, do they transcend any, do they go across any kind of cultural barrier? Are any of your 10 closest friends 10 years older than you? Are they a member of any other ethnicity besides the one you're in? And if you just write that down and you kind of do kind of, uh, if you think about, you know, they used to have that plate with like, here's all the foods you're kind of supposed to eat. And you're like, am I eating one type of food when it comes to my friendships? Uh, and another question, just real quick, who do you share meals with particularly? I'm talking about food a lot. Uh, who do you share meals with? It's reported that in like 80 or 90% of churches, most of the members have never had someone of a different ethnicity over to their house for dinner. And if we can't even put our feet under the same table, and yet we, we, we want to be standing around the same throne. I mean, I just... It, Romans 12 talks about hospitality as a ministry of a Christian. So be hospitable. Invite someone who would probably be surprised, like, wow, you're inviting me over to, for dinner. Uh, you'll be amazed at what can happen. Uh, who would your children or your spouse say or your friends, do they all look like you? And one more just kind of uh, uh, exhortation. Don't just seek someone out who is physically different yet culturally the same. And this is what Jonathan was talking about. And I know this is a hard conversation because so many things co-vary when we're talking about culture and socioeconomic class and things. Uh, but seeking someone out who's just physically different but culturally the same really leads towards tokenism very easily. Because all you're saying is like, okay, you're really easy to hang out with actually once I get, once I get past the uh, barrier of how you look. Uh, so an action step is to make the first move. Simply break the ice, walk across the street, um, and I would actually say this. I do think the burden is on majority brothers and sisters to make that first move, uh, given uh, what I would say is an accurate narrative of, um, of what I would say is the kind of cultural, uh, being, having the privilege of being the cultural standard. So what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. I work for an organization called The Front Porch, which works uh, to serve predominantly African-American churches or black churches. Uh, people would get so mad and be like, why, why are you calling them black churches? It's, why are you calling them black churches? Uh, and I said, uh, they're called that uh, because they weren't allowed to worship with black people, weren't allowed to worship with whites historically, and therefore were cast to create their own churches. Uh, and churches are really just white churches, and they have the benefit of being called churches. That's it. But everything else is a standard that has to conform kind of around that. And that's what I mean by that kind of privilege. And I think uh, given that you have that kind of privilege, I think the burden is on. Uh, it's certainly on everyone. Uh, but in the same way uh, that Christ entered the world and stripped off his privilege, uh, Philippians 2 talks about this. He stripped it off and entered into a place uh, he did not have to go to. 
uh, but out of love he came. I think that's a wonderful model. Another question to ask to increase our awareness here. What makes this so hard? What makes this whole concept so hard? I think the answer, me, myself, I, it's us. Every one of us. Especially, especially if you're in a majority culture. Individualization, comfort, preferences, the idolatry of the self and the individual. I mean, you know, we could, we could talk about all that kind of stuff as a tangent. But I think, especially for a conference of worship leaders, one of the ways that I see this come up sometimes, at least in my opinion, is this word authenticity that we want to talk about sometimes. Um, I may be the only one, but I feel like I've had a handful of conversations here with worship leaders that will say something like, I don't want to sing that song because that's not me. Or I don't know if I could do that style because I'm not really being authentic in that. Um, that's a very different tangent in terms of how we could define authenticity. I think, I think a lot of us want to define authenticity sometimes as like the preservation of my cultural identity. Mm. Mm. When I think if we really dig into it, biblically kind of a worship in spirit and in truth thing is that I think really what God cares more about is our true worship versus false worship. I think that's more authentic worship is, am I worshiping God faithfully, not am I worshiping God in a way that actually preserves my cultural identity? Um, Harold Best has a really great uh, way of describing that in one of his books that I'd be more than happy to send you in my transcript, but he just... He just summarizes authenticity as spiritual integrity, which I think is a great way to view it as opposed to the preservation of cultural preferences. And I think the best illustration for this, again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Philippians 3 shows us he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, like he knew his majority culture, but he was willing to worship God faithfully and be all things to all men that he might save some. So that offers us an encouraging example there. And the action, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul said in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. This goes right against the awareness piece we were talking about. It's so hard because we want to make life about us. Aaron Ivey gave a great talk about that this morning for us. So, action steps. Choose we over me. Choose we over me. I mean, even as it comes to song selection, instead of asking which songs are going to fit my voice the best or which styles do I like as the paid worship person on staff, ask which songs are going to serve our congregation. Which songs might be a reflection of the community? Ask, ask some of those kind of we questions instead of just the me questions. Another one is to let others lead. Um, I'll, I will never forget, and I'm, I'm sure we could fill up all of our time with storytelling today, but uh, with, with, all of, with all of my best intentions, I had a conversation a couple years ago where I invited um, a, lot of the, a lot of the ethnically minority leaders on our church staff and I wanted to have a conversation just about how, what are some of the things we could do to our worship gatherings along this topic. And I kind of set the stage with everything. 
And no sooner had the words come out of my mouth that one of our faithful brothers and sisters, another, another pastor on staff, called me out in front of everybody. And he's like, with all due respect, brother, what you just said is that you want us to have a conversation so that you can figure out worship for this church. You're in the majority culture. Let us figure out this whole conversation and let us lead in something that we know how to lead in. And that was incredibly convincing. It was exactly what I needed to hear, but I'll never forget that moment. And maybe those are the kind of things that we all need to have in our churches. Um, I, think, I think along the same lines, hiring, I think, is a really big component in this. Are we just hiring people that look like us, that are just like a cookie-cutter version of who we are, or are we intentionally hiring people that look more like the communities that we're in? Um, hire qualified leaders that reflect your community. Um, actually, I want to build off of that. Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, that's right. good, man. Please keep I'm not going. done yet. Um, so another point of awareness. What does it look like to love our neighbors? What does it look like to love my neighbor? Luke 10. I want to camp out here for just two minutes real quick. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. On these two commandments, loving God and loving, loving others as ourselves, depend all the law and the prophets. As Matthew 22 tells us in the same passage that corresponds to this one in Luke 10. Notice here, it's not just love God and love others. That's still a great, a great point and a very biblical principle. But it's loving others as ourselves. I think that's something I really want to drive home for us today. That same phrase shows up in both Matthew and Luke. And so often, I feel like as worship leaders, all of us want to talk about the first clause of those commandments. About how we can love God in our worship gatherings. How we can magnify Him. Let us be equally quick to come to the second part and love our neighbors as ourselves. What would it look like for a whole generation of leaders in the church that don't just get the loving God part, but also get the loving our neighbors as ourselves and treat both of those equally? What a vision for us. And then, of course, what follows this? Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then we have the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I think it's important for us to kind of think through that story, which I've heard a lot, especially growing up in the church, through the grid of like this whole multicultural conversation. Jesus was a Jew. The priest and the Levite are Jews. The audience was what? Jewish. So probably the man left for dead was probably a Jew as well. But who rescues him? Not a Jew. A minority, in a sense, according to everybody else in the story. Someone with a different cultural and perhaps economic background. 
Even more so, the Samaritans probably even had a lot of resentment at the Jews because the Jews considered themselves superior to Samaritans. What an inspiring picture that the one who transcends cultural boundaries and social expectations is the one who is esteemed here. And notice that the classification of neighbor, neighbor has nothing to do with cultural or economic background. Again, that's, that's Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He gets the same principle. And so the action for us, get comfortable with uncomfortable. Get comfortable with uncomfortable. That's really hard. It's really hard because I care a lot about my own comfort. But if we're really going to love other people well, we have to get comfortable, especially in a majority culture, with uncomfortable. Think about it this way. Most likely, there are people that come into your worship gatherings every single weekend who are more uncomfortable than you. And there's some aspect of your worship gathering, whether it's, I don't know, the way somebody phrases something or the elements or a or the style of music or something. There's something that makes other people uncomfortable. And so if 100% of your worship gathering is comfortable for you, it's probably time to change your worship gathering to serve other people more effectively. I think another, another very quick example of this, John 4, the whole kind of spirit and truth passage. But see this in verse 27 real quick. When the disciples come back to Jesus after he's been talking with a Samaritan woman, they marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? No one questioned Jesus, which I think that actually shows that they were getting comfortable with uncomfortable. Because even though there was an obviously multicultural relationship thing, it probably would have been really awkward. They'd hung out with Jesus enough to know he loves others really well. He's defining what it means to love others. And their allegiance to Christ overrides their cultural instincts. And so even like another final practical application, and then I'll hand the mic back to Isaac over here. Have you ever worshipped in a setting that is very uncomfortable for you? Have you, have you actually put yourself in the shoes of a minority? Maybe go to an Eastern Orthodox service or go to a service in another language. Whatever that may be for your community, find a worshiping community that is incredibly different from your majority culture and go worship there sometime. And I think that experience will really allow you to kind of put yourself in the shoes of others and love them even better. Because we haven't had enough stories, I'm going to add one more. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in India uh, visiting a church that, whose, uh, whose primary language is Hindi. So the whole service, I really don't know what's going on, but I'm trying to track and uh, keep going. Uh, but I learned things from that church because, that I could never learn, frankly, from uh, another church in D.C. Because that church was grenaded two weeks before I got there. I could see the blast marks on the wall, and I'm telling you, that was something for me, and again, I'm speaking as an ethnic minority even in this room, 
and I was a minority in that room, but to go and be the minority, have you been a minority in a room before? You'll learn things you, uh, you can't learn. Uh, as we keep going, I just want to, you might be wondering right now, are these guys up here basically advocating for perfect comfort in the church? No, we're not advocating that. We're, we're advocating for love in the church. And what I mean by that is uh, it's interesting in that story of the Good Samaritan. What you had was someone who was trying to get out of love, but into heaven. They were trying to get out of loving their neighbor, but get into heaven. And Jesus says, that's impossible. That's, that's impossible. Uh, and I just want to quote a letter from a Birmingham jail, which is just in the pantheon of American epistles. Uh, and maybe you read it in like sixth grade, but I encourage you to go back to it now because it could have been written yesterday. It's just eerily prophetic. And in it, Martin Luther King says, tension is not a bad thing. And everyone wants to see discomfort and tension as a bad thing. When he says tension is not the presence of, it's not, um, it's not the absence of peace, but the absence of, uh, sorry, tension is not the absence of peace, but the, pre- uh, the presence of injustice. I think I'm misquoting that, but Martin Luther King says it better. Anyway, I want to keep going. Where does this start? Uh, it starts with us. It, re- it really does start with us. People are going to have to do different things. Uh, some people are going to have to die to themselves more than others. And our temptation will be like, well, he's not dying to himself as much as I. And Jesus would say, as he said at the end of John, what is that to you? You follow me. That's Christ's call to us. Uh, and the fact that you're here and interested in this topic might be God casting vision for you to be an agent of change in your community for his glory. Um, And I just want to encourage you. I want to make sure I'm not just framing this in such a way where it sounds like there are only personal applications here. I don't know if you have Netflix, you should just go home and watch the documentary 13th. Just just watch that and and see what you think otherwise, see what you think otherwise about what I would say are systemic issues in this country that might help frame this conversation for you. Um, so an action uh, is to do something now. What practical steps can you take in your weekend worship to make your neighbors feel a greater sense of love, appreciation, value, or belonging? That might even be getting someone up and asking them to share about their experience within your gathering. That's something we've done in our church and it's been uh, a wonderful testimony of time. Um, have you had other people up there leading, like Jonathan's been talking about, testimonies, prayers, reflecting the diversity of your community? Or are you asking people to simply assimilate or leave? So if you want to get along here, you have to do everything like us, talk like us, dress like us, or frankly leave. Of course, you would never say that. But I'm asking in practice, what are you asking people to do within your community? Um, And I just think right here, again, the temptation uh, is to just go and run off and do something really fast. I want to we're going to suggest resources at the end, uh, but I'm just going to throw out one. Uh, Just read the book Divided by Faith. Just just read that book. Have your have you ever encouraged your pastors to read books? And I love gospel centered crossway books. Trust me, I love that. But have you encouraged them to read outside of what they might normally read to say, I think we should sit back and read, sit down and read about, read this, and then have a conversation. And you'd be surprised what could happen. Let me kick it back to you. Yeah, I feel like the list of 
action steps from that could just be endless there. I think, I think to emphasize what Isaac's saying, do something now. It could be so tempting to say, okay, well, I need to schedule a meeting and I got to do this and I got to make sure we get all of our ducks in a row. I mean, even to press the urgency, what can you do Sunday or even next Sunday and, and start to implement things now? Um, even a very practical one. I mean, if you guys have a place that like a lot of bands go and hang out and just do the band thing and, you know, sit backstage or sit off to the side or kind of do their own band click together on Sunday mornings, don't do that. Meet with other people. Fellowship with other people. Talk to other people. I think a final point of awareness that we want to emphasize today, what about music? It is a worship conference. We are worship leaders. We need to talk about music for a minute. In terms of awareness, many that come from more the conservative and reformed traditions theologically love to stand for doctrine. Yes, songs are sung theology, and we should be really careful about what we sing. I think we have a couple of breakouts that are going on about that as well today. However, we need to balance that with an understanding that there's a power to personal experience that needs to be sung sometimes. Um, I've, I've seen some in the, and I would say more of the Reformed traditions kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and look at even certain genres of maybe gospel music or something as having, having a weaker theology or something like that or a shallow theology. Sometimes those kind of accusations that we make against other genres of music that come from other cultures are not less theological. It's just the power of personal experience which helps to complement some of our hymn stanzas that are so robust in all, all the old antiquated language that we love to use in those things that really stir our affections. But we need both. We need balance there. And, and can, I, I, can I add something to that real yeah. quick? Just, I think it's, real, it's a real temptation to try to calculate fruit from songs, from lyrics, and we are just not the Holy Spirit. We can't do that. Anyone who's married in the room knows it's very, very easy to moralize your differences. You know, so if my wife would just think more like me, we would get through. And that's just, you're already sitting right there. I mean, you're already treating yourself as the standard of law. And I think that's very tempting to do. And it kind of, that's what ethnocentrism is. It's saying this ethnicity centers, everything centers around here. And this is the standard. And anything that doesn't match it falls short. I think, I think a way to illustrate you know, maybe some of these differences, um, think of two very different ways of learning music. There are some that play by ear. There's some that have actually learned to read music. We don't say that one is better than the other, right? It all depends on your context. In some of our churches, we have a bunch of musicians that all need to read the music, and that's okay. But in other churches... Everybody plays by ear, and that's okay. And so, similarly, let's approach the whole conversation about music with the with same understanding that both are valid, <coughs> both are helpful, and let's, let's try to find the fruit in all of this. Um, I think in terms of an application, focus on lyrical content and defer on style. Hmm. Focus on the lyrical content and defer on style. Um, that's hard, but I think, I think that's the easiest way to explain that. I don't, I don't need to unpack that. And I think, I think the broader application, even as it comes to music, 
is we have to learn to love what our neighbors love. Learn to love what your neighbor loves. So I have a friend at our church who loves to say, hashtag death to my pref. And he says that all the time. Death to my pref. Because he needs to preach it to himself. We all need to preach it to ourselves. And it's, it's really hard, especially when God has put you in the position of selecting song styles for your congregation. It's really hard to do that objectively. But pray and trust God and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you to serve your people even better and to love them through your song selection. I think even a tangent off of this, do you appreciate music outside of your preferences? Hmm. Are you stretching yourself in terms of the things that you listen to? To appreciate it, you have to listen to it. You can't appreciate something you never listen to at all. Are you taking steps to grow as a musician in new styles of music? You're not going to be good at a new style at first. So start by trying to practice on your own and then see if you can grow in those areas. Even, I mean, I would even say, I mean, if you're in a highly structured church, maybe even start by introducing some tags. I think a great example of that is what Bob did this morning is he just, he just camped out on that, on that first line. I can't even think of which song it was, but there was, was just one the line. Lord. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. His mercy is more. And he hit that one line again and again and again and again. That's a really easy action step that actually appeals to people from a variety of cultures that really appreciate repetition. Um, somebody else that's really good at this is Latifah Phillips. She does a great job as she leads songs of just adding in a tag or a praise chorus um, and, and just kind of singing around that for a half minute or a couple of minutes or more. And another, um, and another good example, just in case you're not Bob Coughlin or Latifah Phillips, is... Capitol Hill, man, I would say we are not, like, musically impressive at all. Like, it's like, it's a piano. That's all, it, I mean, and anyone can play it. But uh, what we've done, and I really appreciate your encouragement to focus on lyrical content, is while the styles remain the same with the piano and the guitar, we've adopted 16th century hymns, old 17th century hymns, and hymns written by slaves. And you can tell in the lyrical content that there's even difference in style that ministers to different people. And then also challenge your team to do these things. Sometimes it can be really easy just to focus on ourselves as leaders, but lead. Lead your people. Challenge all the musicians on your worship team to go through the same list of applications. And I think in terms of trying to land the plane maybe with an illustration for us today, a sub-theme of this conference is the Reformation. And... Even starting right now, there's so many all over the world that are starting to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. A heart of the Reformation is making worship accessible to all. Making worship accessible to all. Those guys didn't get everything right. I mean, some of the things that Martin Luther said were pretty inflammatory, especially about the Jews. But at the end of the day, at that time... All of Christian worship was something done by priests on behalf of the people, on behalf of the people, but so many people couldn't understand it for a variety of factors. And so that's just one of the things that we can celebrate about the Reformation is that it made Christian worship 
accessible to people again in large numbers and mostly through using using the right language that was accessible to them. I think a specific example is John Calvin. His, his whole vision was not even just for his church, but for the entire city of Geneva, that everyone, and I would say from a variety of statuses or vocations, that everyone would experience true worship. So, here we are, five centuries away from some of these changes, but we still have a lot of reforms that are needed in our churches. And we're still at a really important juncture today, as we've, as we've been talking about all day. So maybe the task before us, as the men and women of God that are here in this room and listening later on with our podcast, what would it look like in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our churches, if we really took God at his word and loved others as we love ourselves? And in that sense, we made worship more accessible by using a language of love for everyone. Isaac, man, would you actually close out this time before we hit Q&A with a prayer for all the, yeah. all the leaders and churches that are represented here? Yeah, can I? I, I had to look up Dr. King's quote because I botched it so bad. <laughs> Bring it, man. <laughs> Bring it. Let me just say this about true peace, okay? This is what he said. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. Okay, so ask yours, have you ever asked about your set list? Is this a just set list? It's good. Is this fair? Is this right before this community? Right, anyone, you, you can look at a bad marriage and it might just be at quote unquote peace, kind of like the DMZ, like a no fire zone. But is there actual justice in that marriage between the husband and how he treats his wife? That's not true peace. So though, yes, Romans 8.28, the creation is groaning and we all have that tension. Tension is not something to run away from. I'll leave it there. Let me pray for us and then... Why don't we do this? I want to be sensitive to our time. Yeah. Why don't we talk about resources? I was thinking about and then, And then you can close out our time in prayer. And we'll just hit Q&A after the fact. Yeah, because I was going to say God is faithful to his promises, but breakout speakers aren't. And we took up all the time. We did. Um, let's, so why don't you... Why don't you run through your resources and I'll run through mine. Yeah, there's a couple of resources that I would recommend. Um, and this is in no particular order, but one of them is Brian Loritz's Right Color, Wrong Culture. He gives a really helpful illustration in there of what he calls the three C's in terms of understanding multiculturalism and somebody's allegiance to their cultural identity. Somebody that's like, um, and all this, I think it's coming from him, like a C1 for him would be somebody like, Carlton Banks on the Fresh Prince. That would be like a C1 of somebody who's totally assimilated in, into the majority culture. On the other extreme, you got a C3 who would be like Ice Cube. And then somewhere in the middle, you've got a C2 that's a bridge builder. And I think the example he uses is Denzel Washington. He's always Denzel, even though he plays a variety of roles and he's kind of bridging the gap between the cultures there. Um, a couple more, especially for worship leaders in terms of how to be intentional in your community. Tim Keller has a lot of really great resources on intentionality. Um, so it's not directly multiculturalism, but in terms of his approach to intentionality and contextualization is incredible. Um, Center Church is, is a really thick book, but if you just go after chapter 23 
that chapter is gold for worship leaders. Um, and then also a couple more. Sandra Van Opstel's The Next Worship is a book is a book that came out recently. Um, she actually serves at a predominantly Hispanic congregation in a small section of Chicago and just has a really great perspective on a lot of this stuff. Um, and then Isaac also mentioned Divided by Faith. Yeah, I talked about Divided by Faith. Um, this isn't worship specific at all, but there's a black past, there's a, a black writer who grew up in a black pastor, uh, eventually left the faith, but he writes so well about race in America. His name is James Baldwin, and he has something called Notes of a Native Son, which are the collection of essays that he wrote. Uh, that if you just read the essay, Notes of a Native Son, it will again sound eerily prophetic to our times here in the States. And it will be really helpful to understand where he actually looks at a high-profile shooting that happened 40 years ago, and he explains why things happened and went out the way they did in certain communities. Uh, and I think that's profound. Uh, and at the risk of sounding self-serving, I've written a couple of things. Uh, so you can search the graveyard of multi-ethnic worship. Uh, and that's on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, I've written an article called Why White Churches Are Hard for Black People. That's on nine marks, the number nine, M-A-R-K-S. Um, and uh, I've written some other things I'm happy to send you if you want to come up uh, and see me afterward. Um, but there are resources on this, and I think if you read them with your leadership, so our elders at our church, we just sat and we were reading Divided by Faith and having a series of conversations about it, and that's been really fruitful. So should I pray now, and then we'll end our time right on time, and then you can come and ask us some, some questions after the fact. Great. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks uh, and praise uh, that there will be people uh, because of your power and might, only you can do this. There will be people yes, on the last day from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Thank you, Lord. There will be diversity, and yet there will be unity because we will all be in white robes, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Father. That righteousness that we didn't earn, that righteousness uh, that we didn't deserve, Lord. None of our churches here are deserving, Father. We need your help. We need your wisdom. Father, I pray that you would give us endurance please, Lord. in this difficult conversation. Help us to ask humble questions, embarrassing questions, Father. We're secure in you. What do we have to prove to someone? Help us, Father. Help every church represented here to be a better and more faithful representation of your love toward us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.